Hebrews chapter 4 verses 12 and 13 states, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. It's the power of the Word of God, which is true from the beginning to the end, that we focus on today as we consider part three of The Conversion of an Evolutionist. Hello friends, I'm Wayne Shepherd, and you're listening to Encounter God's Truth, a Bible teaching outreach of Whitcomb Ministries and Dr. John Whitcomb. We're currently following Dr. Whitcomb as he explains how God worked in his life to bring him to faith in Christ, and we're gaining an understanding of how the Lord has led and taught our speaker in the 75 years since that time. This presentation is part of a new series called Basic Biblical Distinctions. We're bringing it to you with gratitude to Grace Bible Church in Elkhart, Indiana, where Dr. Whitcomb delivered it to the congregation at a Bible conference. You can go back and listen to all the previous messages in this series at sermonaudio.com slash Whitcomb. But right now, let me ask you a question. Can you imagine how insights acquired in a field artillery battalion at the Battle of the Bulge can instruct us regarding the proper use of biblical apologetics. Dr. Whitcomb takes us back to Belgium in December of 1944 to make this connection for us in a simple yet profound way. Here he is to share more of his testimony, The Conversion of an Evolutionist. As we get into a more personal aspect of how God dealt with me in his infinite grace and wisdom and mercy. And of course, before we know it, either by death or hopefully by rapture, Jesus will say, dear child, sit down, let's talk. I'll tell you what happened to you and how. And so we need to learn right now a little bit, don't we, of what we're going to be told when we meet the Lord. Okay. The conversion of an evolutionist and the evolutionist is yours truly, John Whitcomb. That's when it happened. February 1943. How many of you were here in February 43? Ten. Thank you. (laughs) Pastor, where were you? Uh Okay, praise the Lord for that memory of that day. It was on the beautiful campus of, not Harvard, Yale, Cornell, Dartmouth, but what? Princeton. And I just say, Lord, you you just are so special because you can handle the most God-hating places in the world to do a perfect work. And uh, Princeton University to this day, to this very hour, uh, hates the gospel But they do have, praise the Lord, still on that campus, the Princeton Evangelical Fellowship, a small group of people, students, excuse me, with a couple of teachers, missionaries that help them to uh, win souls for Christ uh, in that environment of 4,000 students. Harvard, of course, is bigger with 8,000 and other schools are bigger. But uh, anyway, uh, that was the place where God showed a special, a special evidence of his grace and mercy. And it was through that fellowship that was established in when? 1931, when Dr. Donald Fullerton came back from Afghanistan to have a Bible teaching ministry at the Student Center, which is Murray Dodge Hall, on that that beautiful campus. All right. Now, God never intended that Christians should win the lost through purely philosophical and academic arguments, or even that they should, by this means, remove the mental obstacles within unbelievers so that the word of God might penetrate their heart. You see there's two things there. 
you not only don't prove the Bible, and many Christians who are rationalists, who think you have to use arguments, you know, to win the lost, uh, many Christians even that believe that say, no, you can't prove the Bible, but at least you can remove reasons for rejecting the Bible. And that's a very dangerous attitude, very dangerous, because you're going to bump into somebody sooner or later, now and then, that knows more about some things than you do. And you say, well, then how, how can I win this person to the Lord if I can't answer his arguments, you see, and uh, at least wipe out the objections he may have. We have to find an expert somewhere. I mean, this is so silly. Uh, one, one of these rationalistic Christian apologists said, you know what? None of us know all the answers, but we have a, a, an expert in New Jersey that here's his 800 number. You can call him if you have any problem. Now, wait a minute. It's like God saying, oh, really, who's this expert? How Can I have a word here? May I, by my spirit, have a part in this presentation? He's the expert. He is. And I say, Lord, teach me how this works. Okay? Now, to turn off the light of God's word, as it were, in order to establish first a common ground with the unbeliever, is thus to abandon truth in order to grope together with an unregenerate mind in the darkness that characterizes the world system apart from God. The minute you start arguing with somebody, you've set the light aside, right like that. You're, in, you're both in the dark now. Dark, dark. Nothing's going to happen. God says, trust me, it won't happen. And I say, now Lord, I, I, really, I, I really need your help. I really need your help. Well, I was a soldier, as I mentioned, in the Second World War. I was in a field artillery battalion in uh, Belgium in the Battle of the Bulge in December 1944. And the enemy came zooming in with 300,000 soldiers and tanks and so forth. And, uh, I mean, look at that thing. Wow. Achtung, Panzer kommt. A tank. Is coming. Now we had Ford observers. You know what they were, don't you? Usually a second or first lieutenant. Very dangerous job. He was a, near the front line, hiding in a rooftop or a top of a tree or something, watching a German tank come up the road. And he would say to he would get on his telephone and call back to the fire direction center where I was with with a you know as a computer fire direction computer, and we would tell our our artillerymen. 105 millimeter howitzers, 12 of them, cannons, with uh, artillery shells. Uh, shoot at that target right there, all 12. Use smoke shells, see, because you know you're going to miss the first round. The forward observer then calls back if he's still alive and says, shift this far, this far. Fire again, smoke shells. By now, second round, we've got, him, we've got the tank zeroed in. But you see what you're telling the field, the, the Ford observer? Don't you dare go out and fight those tanks yourself. Don't pound them with your fist or shoot them with your rifle. You'll be dead. Don't you do that. Call the fire direction center where we have the power to destroy that tank. See? And what happened? Third round. Twelve artillery shells zoom over his head. 
land on that tank coming at that narrow road in Belgium, the tank is destroyed. Why? Because the artillery shells have a delayed fuse. They enter into the tank and explode inside. I mean, that's like serious. The tank's finished. Kaput. Kaput. Panzerkampfwagen. Kaput. By the way, the German, this is what generally agreed is the reason why they lost the Battle of the Bulge. And the German commander, von Rundstedt, told Hitler, we can't win a war in Belgium in mountains in the wintertime with tanks on narrow roads. They'll zoom in on our tanks and destroy them. And one German tank destroyed will block the other tanks behind it on a narrow road in a mountain. You can't, we can't win. You know what Hitler said to him? Go. Hitler was absolutely insane as well as demonic. I mean, it was a, the German army had soldiers and officers that were quite intelligent. My father had great respect for the German army, see. But they had a, they had a demonic maniac telling him what to do. The, 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 he, he killed thousands, hundreds of thousands of his soldiers by stupid commands like that. So von Rundstedt said, oh, here we go. And they lost. Now, friends, here's the point. You and I are forward observers for God in this world. And when we see the enemy coming, we don't rush out with our weapons, see, our skills, our intelligence, and try to handle the enemy. We're doomed. God says, trust me, I'm available. When all else fails, call on me. I'm the fire direction center for you. I am very experienced and very skilled and very well equipped to handle the enemy. Just call on me. This, this is hard to do sometimes, uh, silently, but in our heart. Lord, help me. I need help. I, I really need help. Okay, now here's how it works. You ready? When I came to the Savior that night in February 1943 in my dorm room in Pine Hall, I really had a desire to learn about God that I'd never had before, to learn the Bible. But I was extremely ignorant, obviously, on how to help anybody else. So uh, I thought, well, uh, I need to talk to one of my fellow students here about this Bible class at Murray Dodge Hall and invite him to come next Sunday. Well, he was a very brilliant young man. So I had a reputation in our dormitory for having, you know, a lot of answers about a lot of problems. He loved to display his wisdom, his brilliance. I said, you know what? Nobody can be really educated. How do you like this argument? Unless he knows the Bible. He said, the Bible? Why would I waste my time studying a book 2,000 years out of date? Then he hit me hard. He said, sir, you know this, don't you? There isn't a single professor in the science department in this university that believes anything that Genesis says about how the world began. Well, he was right. I knew it. I was one of them. See? So I did a stupid thing. I said, well, I'll, I'll get something. I'll get some books to help you. I went to the university library to find books that prove Genesis is true. Guess how many I found? I went to Dr. Fullerton, my soul winner. He scraped up a few little pamphlets on creationism. Back, by the way, in the 40s, there was hardly any Christian literature that was solid on creation issues. See? Very little. It was the aftermath of the Scopes trial in Dayton, Tennessee, which absolutely devastated the reputation of Christianity in this country, especially on the origins questions. See? Okay. 
So I, I brought these pamphlets to uh, my friend and said, oh, well, maybe this will help you. He said, I mean, he was so suave. He said, you know, I, I'm amazed, sir, that uh, anyone who believes the Bible could even write a pamphlet. But I'll tell you what I'll do. If I have time, I'll read them. Guess what? He had no intention, whatever. I was so de- so defeated. So that when Dr. Fullerton said, now, John, would you come with me next Sunday? We're going to invite a student to come to the Bible class. Because every September at university, the Princeton Evangelical Fellowship had a table like this, see, with literature and information about the gospel and about our Bible class. Freshmen would come in, this gymnasium, hundreds of tables. Some would actually sign up for the Bible class. To be able to write home to grandmother or mother, you know, I'm going to a Bible class, so everything's fine here at Princeton. They had no intention of coming, especially after they looked at all the other tables, things to sign up for activities, you know, programs and functions and social things. And and then when they got their assignments and classes, oh, they'd never seen anything like the assignments they got. Oh, guess what gets dropped off of the priority list? The Princeton Evangelical Fellowship Bible class, of course. But wait a minute. Dr. Fullerton had their name. And for months, he would follow up one after another after another personal confrontation in those dormitories. He said, John, uh, you come with me this Sunday. I said to myself, I, I, no, I am humiliated. I don't want any more confrontations. I'm out of this. But he insisted, as he so graciously could do things like that. He said, I'll, I'll take care of it, John. I just want you to be with me. I really do. Because he did something that I didn't know how to do. He prayed for that encounter. Now, that's a very dangerous thing to do, to pray for somebody in the name of Jesus. See, you know what Jesus said about prayer? If you ask anything in my name, I will what? I'll do it. Now, someday I want to find out how he... Can you imagine Jesus answering prayers of millions of people every moment, night and day, in a thousand languages, perfectly? Wow. That's overpowering. Well, Donald Fuller knew how to pray. So I was sort of dragged into this situation. We went to this dormitory, knocked on the door. The door opened, cigarette smoke poured out. We saw five or six figures in the murky darkness and stated who we were. Lamp post tipped over, four of them fled. Our victim was trapped. (laughs) He said, gentlemen, I'm so sorry. I'm not interested in the Bible anymore. I've discovered it's not true. Oh, I was ready to say, well, we're sure sorry we bothered you. Goodbye. (laughs) But not Donald Fullerton. Now, now, wait a minute. What what would you have said? He said, now, this is, I'll never, he was brilliant, biblically brilliant. He said very graciously, thank you, but I'm amazed to learn that in five months you've discovered the Bible is not true. What did you find in the Bible that's not true? Uh Uh-oh. The student was terrified. Why? As his four roommates were listening to this conversation. A Princeton student never says a book is false if he hasn't even read it. That's academically ridiculous. So he floundered for a minute. He said, uh, oh, yes, Jonah and the whale. Nobody would believe that stupid story. He said the wrong thing to the wrong man. You know what I was going to do then? I was going to go to the library and dig up books on whales. And prove to him that some whales can swallow people. And that some people have been swallowed by some whales. That was the last thing he needed. Guess what he needed? 
Now wait till you hear this one. Dr. Fullerton said, thank you for mentioning that amazing book. You would be astounded to hear what Jesus Christ the Lord said about the book of Jonah. And then he told the student who Jesus Christ the Lord is. For a whole hour, the gospel beautifully presented. I, I, trust me, in one hour, that student was on his knees accepting Christ as a savior. I said, Where, what about Jonah and the whale? <laughs> he said, I don't know anything about it. But one thing I now know, the Bible is true. My life has changed. Friends, this went on week after week, month after month, for 50 years on that campus. And I say, Lord, I just am amazed. Now, here was the hard part. I had to write to my mother and father and tell them what happened to me. I did the best I could to explain who Jesus is and what the gospel is and the Bible and everything. I didn't go into a lot of arguments and so forth. And about a month later, a sad letter came back to me from my mother. I was the only child, you understand. They had their, all their hopes pinned on my career, my goal. Son, we're with you. We are with you as you come through this psychological experience that adolescents often have. In other words, they thought their son had been, what, sidetracked, poisoned by some kind of occultism, psycho thing or other, that someday perhaps I would recover from that. I was devastated. I had two choices, folks. Either never mention Christ again in my home or have a divided family. That's an awful choice. And I said, Lord, help me to be a witness to my mom and dad. For 30 years, I prayed for my mother and father. Finally, I'm quite sure when my dad was in his 80s, he came to Jesus as his savior. Not sure about my mother. But you see, friends, what happens when you come to the Lord, you have the light. And God wants to have divided homes. He said so. He said, Jesus said in, in Luke 12, I have come to divide mother from father and brother from sister and husband from wife and child, parents and so forth. Division, division, division. So that there's some light that shines in what would otherwise be total darkness. He loves us so much. He wants us to have some light. He wants us to have some light. And, and, and God says, don't grope around in the dark. Let me be your light. Now, in the book of Proverbs, we find an amazing statement about this business of the light. See if we can find it. Job, Psalms, Proverbs. And uh, let's take a look at uh, chapter 20, verse 12. Do you have that? Proverbs 20, 12. The hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made both of them. Now, friends, when, when you stop to think about this, it's absolutely astounding what God is saying. If you were in a deep, dark cave with somebody and you got lost, and you say, well, how do we get out of here? Where's a light? Well, uh, I have a flashlight here, but I don't think it'll work. Well, Try it. I mean, push the button. Well, I don't. I just don't think it'll work. Well, look. Oh, let's not argue about it. Please push the button. 
And guess what happens? The minute you push the button, the light comes on and all discussion stops as to whether the light's on. You know why? Because you have a built-in system called eyes connected with the brain that can immediately, instantaneously detect the presence of physical light. The argument's over. How did you get those eyes? Look, the hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them. Okay, you're in a, to- you're in a room with that's totally silent. It's sealed off from all noise. And after a while, you know, total darkness is damaging to people. Total silence for days is damaging to people. So you say to your friend, well, why don't you turn the radio on? Well, it won't work. I think it will. I know it won't. Well, why argue about it? Why not go over and push the button? And all of a sudden, guess what happens? Music comes on. And all discussion and debate as to whether there's music ends because the ear was designed by God to detect the presence of audible sound. Just like that. It's all, it's over. So God says, now watch me here. I have the light that will shine in the heart of man. And all discussion and debate and argument as to whether the light is on is ended. Watch me. I specialize in light and sound and equipment in the human heart, mind, and head to detect his presence. Now, here we go. Are you ready? Watch. Neo-evangelicalism says, no, no. God needs our brilliance, our skills, our education. The Bible alone is not enough. Neo-evangelicalism is very bad. Now, these are born-again people. Let me uh, explain immediately. We're talking about fellow Christians here. This is the dominant view in evangelical Christianity today. Neo-evangelicalism. Okay, now watch. Here's God's written word on creation and the flood. God's written word on the 70th week of Daniel and the millennium, as you saw last night. Okay. And God's written word on God's gracious plan for Israel and the church. Wow, look at all this. Based on what? The absolute inerrancy of biblical length autographs. But the new evangelical says, now wait a minute. Unless we can prove these things to the unregenerate mind, you can't expect them to believe it. So new evangelicals are notorious for what? Watering down the creation. and the, the creation becomes what? Theistic evolution. The flood becomes what? Some regional catastrophe in Mesopotamia or something, which is what I used to believe. Okay? And new evangelicals are notorious for what else? They don't believe the 70th week of Daniel, and they don't believe in the millennium. They're very confused about what else? About how to identify Israel and the church, and they don't believe in the inerrancy of the Bible. You say, how can they be Christians? That's why when we are taken up at the rapture, and the dead in Christ raised first too, we're going to be confronted by Christ at the Bema to determine whether we receive a reward or a crown on the basis of what we've done with this Bible. That's going to be very heavy for some Christians. Can't, you can't lose your salvation, folks. See, you will suffer loss, yet you shall be saved, yet by fire. Because to some extent or other, all of us have the potential with the sin nature of being a neo, a neo-Christian, a neo-evangelical. See, and, and when you look at what does it do to you? Look at this. Semi-rationalistic apologetics. In other words, you have to somehow prove to the, Bi- the people or remove objections that people have to the Bible if you expect anybody to become a Christian. You're, all, you've already, you're already defeated 
right there. And because you're open to all these non-biblical influences, look what else happens to Christians today. Uh, social, cultural perspective, feminist movement, human rights, abortion. You see, all these things that the world does, you say, well, it's okay. No problem. No big problem. Look at this. Ecumenism. Let's, let's join with Catholics and liberals and everybody so we'll have a, a gigantic unified movement to impress the world. Oh, how about psychology and counseling? This has dominated many a church. Human schemes for influencing people in their homes, their marriages, their neighborhoods, their church. Oh, charismatic theology, as we mentioned before, you have to have sign miracles to expect anybody to believe the Bible. See? And uh, all of which is existentialism, which means in German, existence, I am ultimate. Only what I approve and what I understand and what I see is true. That's a disaster. Well, we're going to have to pause there today, but we remind you that the teaching continues at sermonaudio.com slash Whitcomb. You can go there directly from our webpage at whitcombministries.org. To see the very latest from Whitcomb Ministries and encounter God's truth, make sure to join us at facebook.com slash Ministries. There you'll find news and updates to inform and edify you all throughout the week. We look forward to concluding this message on the conversion of an evolutionist next time, and we hope you'll tune in then. It certainly is reassuring to look back and be reminded of the wonderful, providential working of God in the life of Dr. Whitcomb over the course of many years. Until then, I'm Wayne Shepherd, praying that God has encouraged you today through the ministry of Encounter God's Truth.